Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome to today's show of Adding Context. Today's guest is Dr. Doug Massey. Why don't you uh, go ahead and explain who you are and what you do? I'm a professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton. I teach in the policy school there, and uh, I do research on racial segregation, international migration, and uh, stratification in American society. That's quite a mouthful you got going on there. Any other titles, uh, knighthoods, or honors that you've been bestowed upon? Um, well, I've, <laughs> yeah, I've got lots of awards and things like that. It's not necessary to go into them all. <laughs> Um, I guess one of my first questions would be, what, uh, what drew you to sociology? Um, I, w- I grew up in the 60s, uh, and uh, when I was a, a senior in high school, our civics teacher had us read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And, um, you know, growing up in a town of Olympia, Washington, uh, there were no black people. And I really wasn't exposed to race. I thought it was something that happened in the South with being old sheriffs. But when I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, he was from the North, and I could see that race was a nationwide issue. And it was a real problem outside my little cocoon. And I got interested in social issues uh, from that and from the civil rights movement that was going on at the same time. And so I was always interested in social things. So when I went to college... I took a lot of courses in psychology and finished a psych major. I've been studying Spanish since third grade, so I took courses in Spanish and finished a Spanish major. And then I took courses in anthropology uh, because I was interested in different kinds of human societies, and I finished an anthro major. Uh, And then late in my college career, I discovered demography, and I decided I wanted to be a demographer psychology was too abstract and experimental in the, in the away from the field and anthropology was too much in the field and too relativistic and nothing was accumulating so I decided I would go to sociology and study demography and then I went to Princeton University for graduate training in sociology and demography what exactly is uh, demography I mean I have an idea but I'd rather get your definition of it Demography is the scientific study of human populations. So classical demography is birth, deaths, and migration, and how that affects population age and sex structure, and how population age and sex structure affects other social and economic relations in society. You can also talk about population structures with respect to social and economic characteristics, and I do a lot of that as well. So I'm trained in formal demography as well. That's a... quite an extensive background, an educational background. Um, What would you say are some of the the bigger myths or misconceptions about immigration specifically to America? Well, it's a long and complicated story. And uh, I've worked in a lot of public issues and and, and been a public intellectual for about 30 years now, 40 years. And I've never seen so much misinformation and disinformation than I see about immigration. Um, Just currently, thing, or for, uh, for one thing, at the at the, at the current moment, um, undocumented migration from Mexico has been over for about twelve years. It's net negative. <laughs> There's more Mexicans leaving the country than coming in. And when Trump announced his plans to build a wall to stop Mexican migration, it had long ago already really ended. Very few people were coming in, and more people were leaving. And uh, and nonetheless, this big debate about immigration control goes on. They're spending billions of dollars of money allocated to other things to build a wall that's useless because nobody's coming from Mexico. And what, what happened at the border was that um, undocumented migration was going down anyway since about the year 2000 because of the demographic transition in Mexico, which means that the Mexican fertility rate was falling rapidly. 
And around the year 2000, Mexico really started to become an aging population, and the average age in Mexico rose dramatically from about in 16 or 17 in the 1960s to today's rate, uh, average age is about 29 years old. And labor migration is something that occurs between the ages of about 18 and, and 30 and peaks at about 22 or 23. And if you don't migrate by the age of 30, you don't start migrating then, uh, after that age. Got it. And now the Mexican age, average age in Mexico is 29. The average age of people, say, over the age of 16 and theoretically eligible to migrate is about 43. So Mexico just aged out of the migrant-sending years. The migration came to a stop and reversed itself. Uh, and that happened 12 years ago in 2008, 2007, 2008. So um, most people somehow think we're still being invaded by millions. Do you think and, and what happened is what's happened at the border is that what used to be a massive inflow of Mexicans, mainly men and their dependents, looking for work in the United States, uh, uh, has been replaced by a much smaller inflow of women and children or coming to the border not looking for work but looking for refuge and they're from Central Americans Central America and uh, they're coming to the US because of conditions that really date to our intervention in the 1980s which really permanently derailed the economies in the region and introduced endemic violence uh, to the frontline nations of El Salvador Guatemala Honduras and Nicaragua so in a lot of ways we have a moral responsibility the Trump administration is not even adhering to U.S. law and turning people away at the border, forcing them back into camps on the on the US, on the Mexican side. They want to come in and claim asylum, but he's not accepting asylum applications. And so, after they hang around in camps for a while and get desperate, they cross over the border into the United States and look for a border officer to turn themselves in, so that they can claim what's called defensive asylum. Uh, asylum instead of uh, positive or assertive asylum. When you could go to, in theory, and uh, legally in the U.S., they should be allowed to go to a border crossing, report themselves to immigration authorities, and file for an asylum claim. But since Trump's turned that avenue off, they cross the border without authorization and then look to turn themselves in and claim defensive asylum. And And they're being portrayed as criminals and lawbreakers and illegal migrants looking for jobs and whatnot, but really they're looking for refuge from conditions that really um, date to our intervention during the Cold War in the 1980s with the Contra Wars, with the death squads, with uh, uh, the mining of the harbors, uh, all those things really permanently derailed the economies in the region. And those, those types of interventions you're talking about specifically in El Salvador, that's essentially what created the MS-13 uh, gang, yeah, well, correct? Yeah, that's, that's, that's another part of the story. Um, the whole intervention was to, uh, occurred after the Sandinistas came to power in Nicaragua in 1979, and Reagan came into office in 1981 with a promise to prosecute the Cold War to its fullest, and the place where he really chose to take a stand was in Central America, and he authorized the Contra Army to try to overthrow the Sandinista regime and pumped uh, lots of money and arms and training and equipment uh, into El Salvador and Guatemala to, um, to uh, fight uh, insurgencies, left-wing insurgencies in those countries, and then from Honduras launched the Contra Army to displace the Sandinistas. And that went on from about 1982 to around 1992, and uh, only came to an end with the uh, Central American Peace Accords. And um, because uh, the Nicaraguans, uh, who were fleeing the violence and and the economic dislocations, were fleeing a left-wing regime, uh, they were welcomed into the United States and granted a, a red carpet to a green card and granted, uh, uh, even if they came in uh, without authorization, they were able to adjust status to become legal permanent residents. But because Salvadorans and Guatemalans, and later on uh, Hondurans, uh, were fleeing right-wing regimes that were allied to the United States and in fact supported by the United States, 
they couldn't possibly be accepted as refugees or asylum seekers. And so they were forced basically to enter without documentation. And a lot of them ended up in Los Angeles. And there uh, in Los Angeles, Mexicans had been a presence for many, many, many years and had well-developed social networks and access to jobs, access to immigrant-supporting organizations, families, communities. So Mexican undocumented migrants, when they arrived, could integrate quickly into a job and into a local society. But the Salvadorans who arrived uh, tend to be young family, young families fleeing the violence, and uh, they didn't have access to social networks. Their networks were very fragmented, and they had a hard time integrating into jobs. The, man, the men and the women couldn't get jobs very easily. The Mexicans kind of had a lock on it. And the kids, uh, the younger kids, integrated into the schools reasonably well. Uh, the older women did reasonably well or got jobs eventually doing house care work or child care. But the young men, the adolescent men, didn't, couldn't integrate into school. It was too late, and they couldn't get jobs, and they ended up on the street where they were pursued by the Bloods and the Crips, a black gangs in Los Angeles, and they formed their own gang, uh, MS-13, Maras Alvarez 13, 13 uh, to, uh, to defend themselves. And so that that happened in the early 1990s, and then in 1996, after the anti-immigration, anti, anti-terrorism and effective death penalty act was passed, and, and deportations from the United States ramped up in the name of the war on terror, uh, Salvadoran gang members got caught up in the in in the arrests and the deportations, and they were deported back to El Salvador, and that's how Marcel Chuchip came to El Salvador. It was really founded in the Pico Union neighborhood of Los Angeles in the early 1990s among exiled Salvadorans who couldn't integrate into the U.S., and then they were later deported, and that spread the gangs throughout Central America. That is interesting. I didn't realize that. I thought it had originated down in El Salvador, but clearly not. Um, It seems that America's interventional avenues always end up in the land of unintended consequences, um, yeah, it's what CIA agents call blowback. <laughs> Convenient word for uh, not looking far enough ahead yeah. to what actions might. The same thing happened in Vietnam. Uh, that was a debacle. And in the end, the South Vietnamese re- regime collapsed, and boat people uh, were sent out uh, into the seas and were dying and trying to get to the United States. And at that point in American history, we felt a moral obligation to the people that had supported us in our efforts in South Vietnam and worked for the South Vietnamese government or worked for the U.S. military or collaborated with the Americans. And so we took in 1.3 million um, boat people between um, 1978 and 1988 and um, processed them as refugees and asylum seekers. And um, they pretty much integrated into an American society pretty well, and, are, and now their they're second and third generations are part and parcel of American society, and it didn't cost us a whole lot. But after that, well, we began to pull back on our moral obligations to other places. And uh, at this point, we won't even, uh, the Trump administration won't even honor obligations that the U.S. military made to people in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, that if they helped us, that if they got into trouble politically and were threatened, that they would be guaranteed some kind of admission into the United States. Those promises aren't even being acknowledged, much less than people that are fleeing from conditions that caused were caused by our intervention in Central America decades ago. Yeah, Trump, um, there's so many different places you could go with the things that he does that just they they boggle the mind of anybody that that tries to find a lucid thought or or a logical rationale for for his actions it's pretty uh impressive how quickly someone who's unfit for office uh and gains access to the presidency (laughs) can um destroy uh so many institutions 
and caused so many problems in a country and quickly turned the corner on what had been forward movement. Um, his, he's uh, been destroying government capacity in almost all the agencies, and his handling of the coronavirus epidemic uh, has completely been uh, bollocked up. And we're just a pariah country at this point. We've become what he calls a shithole country. Uh, I can't even fly into Europe anymore with a blue passport. Yeah, it's it's like I said. It. I, I try to rationalize and, and and look for that silver lining as to how somebody, especially how he's handled a lot of things. You know, it's I, I really do blame him for a significant chunk of the American response to the current pandemic because. You know, five years ago, Obama even stated that he was putting things into play and setting up a playbook that should something happen, not really should, but when something happened, we'd be better prepared. And one of the first things that he, uh, Trump did when he got in office was really just start dismantling things that Obama put in just because Obama had to did it and it wasn't him. Yeah, he wanted to erase the Obama presidency, and that proved to be very destructive in a lot of ways. Uh, especially with this pandemic, because we knew in the scientific community and educated readers who've been following things that this was going to happen. Uh, it was bound to happen at some point. And rather than uh, uh, build on a, a foundation that Obama had left and briefed him on, uh, he immediately tore, immediately tore it down because he didn't want to do anything to sustain the legacy of a black president. That, and he likes to take credit for things that he has no <laughs> business taking credit for. How, um, how do you think the coronavirus might alter the, the socioeconomic landscape of the nation oh, in general? Oh, well, we're in the middle of a terrible recession that's heading towards depression. Uh, uh, it's, it's the... the the virus is going to kill a lot more people because uh, we've been so haphazard in the way we've handled it and we haven't taken it seriously. And because Trump has politicized a pandemic rather than treating it as a public health issue, uh, it's now become a political battle to even get people to take protective measures like wearing masks and, and socially distancing. Uh, and so we're paying the price in lives and of course, we're paying the price economically as well because of the massive unemployment that's resulted. And the more, longer the unemployment goes on, the worse the economy is going to get, and the more jobs that are not simply going to be lapsed, but to disappear entirely. And this is all happening uh, in a self-perpetuating fashion that's being accelerated by the fact that the Republicans can't come to any agreement to ex extend the money that's going to unemployed people. And, and that will uh, that is immediately reducing all demand for all kinds of goods and services that's going to cause a second wave of uh, joblessness. And the thing about a lot of the jobs that are disappearing, they're in the consumer economy. And they're jobs that aren't uh, absolutely necessary for day-to-day -day -day survival, like going to movies, going to concerts, going to bars, eating at restaurants, traveling. Uh, and when those jobs disappear, it's going to be hard for them to come back. And the demand is going to take a long time to come back. So there's a real downside risk of really long-term structural damage to the United States that the Republicans seem to be completely oblivious to. Um, Republicans have this idea that markets come out of the sky, <laughs> that markets are states of nature rather than institutional creations of human beings. And... Uh, uh, markets just don't drop into existence after after the crisis is gone. It's going to linger, and, and the results are going to be fairly long-standing the longer this happens, the longer this uh, pandemic goes on. I, th I think so, one of the things that, that is frustrating is the complete lack of common sense in our, in our government and the fact that things like science and the coronavirus, things that really shouldn't be politicized or being politicized you know wearing a mask it's it, it's not a left or right thing to wear a mask it's it's what the science dictates and it's what we should be doing to help our fellow person but for some reason trump has gotten his claws into the heads of so many people that just they, they feel that it's a conspiracy and 
instead of doing what is right by your neighbor, I mean, talking about the people that really preach the Bible about loving your neighbor and things like that, those are a good portion of the people that refuse to wear a mask. So it's the level of hypocrisy as citizens and within the government is, is pretty astounding. Yeah, and it's concentrated in one party, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, if you look at um, data from the um, American Social Survey, which goes back to 1972, and, and it's been fielded regularly every year or two since then, um, back in 1972, support for science was fairly high, and it was not div- there was no division by party or, or affiliation. So it was about the same level for Democrats, Republicans, and independents, and for liberals and conservatives. They all had support for science, and in fact, Republicans were slightly ahead of Democrats. But uh, since 1972, year by year, support for science, belief in science, faith in science, has steadily declined among Republicans, and slightly among independents, but not among Democrats. And so now we've got one party that is basically anti-science, and a lot of the the public uh, perceptions on, on the on the right uh, against science really stem from deliberate campaigns that were funded by moneyed interests to uh, uh, to create misinformation and disinformation that creates distrust in science. Um, Americans for Prosperity, which is a Koch brothers funded group, put a lot of money into uh, undoing science they didn't like, like. Um, climate science, uh, and, the, and and in fundamentalist groups, right-wing Christian groups put a lot of money into targeting biological science, which rests on the theory of evolution, which they don't like because it's not biblical. And the destruction of faith in science is now having its consequences for the country. Right. And that's, I, I didn't realize it went back that far, but it, it's clearly evident that the last, you know, 10 or 15 years... I mean, uh, there was the senator uh, a few years ago who, I think it was in the middle of February, was trying to debate the fact that climate change wasn't a thing and that the earth wasn't warming because he was able to hold the snowball in his hand in February. Yeah, there's a lot of silliness going on. Um, I don't know whether these people are stupid uh, or just cynical. Uh, (laughs) But either way, it's reckless and it's really hurting the country. How... um, Sorry to, to shift gears there. How how important to you as a sociologist is the census? Is the census? Yeah. The, well, the census is fundamental to not simply to social science, but to the economic life of the country, and of course, fundamental to the political and governmental life of the country. The census isn't just a survey; it's a constitutionally required mandate, and the census, the modern census provides um, the data that makes a modern post-industrial economy, knowledge-based economy run. Uh, And um, most of the data that we call national statistics uh, come from surveys now. And the surveys are fielded, uh, and they're representative surveys. But um, if you do a sample, you need to take a small subset of a population, and then you need to know how to weight all the different segments of the population properly. And the way we know how to weight uh, surveys is by census data, because that's accurate. It tells you how many people are in different categories, because it's it's a complete count, or or at least a very large count. And uh, the the surveys get reweighted every 10 years. Uh, And if the surveys are not weighted correctly, then we don't we start to lose reliability and validity in our national statistics, which are everything from unemployment rates to GDP to almost anything you think of so it's uh, census data is is, is critical to a, a modern economy and uh, is a constitutional requirement that shouldn't be politicized but of course is thanks to gerrymandering I mean that's I think that's one of the reasons why the politicians like the census well the Republicans uh, are b- back themselves into a demographic corner the bedrock of their support is older white people um, uh, living in non-metropolitan areas or lesser metropolitan areas. And uh, that's literally a dying demographic. Uh, And so if you look at the numbers, 
they can't remain in power at this point without a lot of vote suppression. And that's their strategy. Uh, and it's, and they've been encouraged in this by the Supreme Court when Roberts uh, sided with the conservatives and uh, basically tore up a basic provision of the Voting Rights Act that, that allowed uh, southern states to invent new ways to, uh, uh, to prevent blacks from voting and to prevent poor people in general from voting. And they spread around the country. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a, that's a serious problem for a, a democracy like the United States. Well, the Supreme Court has made a, a few decisions in the last handful of years that are, I see as being very detrimental to the, the health of politics. And Citizens United is one of the bigger ones that I've noticed. Um, but clearly seeing the actions that some of these states are taking, specifically in the South, to clearly make it harder for certain demographics to have access to voting. And now, you know, the current thing in the in the uh, news at the moment is Trump and defunding essentially the, the postal service to back up his claim that they weren't able to adequately deliver ballots in time. Um, it, it's, it's just frustrating. And it's funny you threw out the term of knowledge based uh, for our society. And it just seems to be a lack of knowledge, whether willingful or otherwise, considering what people have access to at their fingertips. Yeah, well, it's outrageous what's happening now um, with defunding the post office, which is a basic service going back hundred, more than 100 years uh, that is, is not becoming redundant uh, in, in today's economy, especially during the pandemic when so many things have to be ordered and remotely delivered. Uh, it's, uh, and, it, and defunding it just to suppress the vote is really criminal in my opinion certainly violates the oath of, of office to a constitution he's in charge of the federal government and the federal government is constitutionally bound to, to create an accurate and, and valid census and he's deliberately trying to scuttle it yeah it's it's definitely frustrating to to sit back and see the things that he's essentially getting away with that are just clear violations of not only common sense and common decency but but essentially the Constitution. You know, I understand it's a living and breathing document, but we haven't done much to really improve upon it in the last 240-some years. Um, well, we've improved on it in some ways, uh, but uh, the Republican Party um, has really shifted from being a conservative party. A conservative party um, looks is worried about social change but supports some social change to maintain stability in society. They're worried about stability in society and, and continuity in society. What we have now is a reactionary uh, Republican Party that um, is not simply against change. They want to go back to a mythical past that, that, that really never existed in the first place, but which they imagine did, uh, but which is really for a very different place and different time. Uh, uh, Basically, the, the older white people now, baby boom generation, my generation, actually, when they think about what America uh, used to be, they think back to the 1950s right. or 1960s. And um, that America was the, mo the whitest and the most native America that really ever existed. And that was the weird part. That was the aberration in American history not now and not what was before in around 1900 the foreign born percentage was around 13 percent and by 1970 it was 4.7 percent and in 1970 the average immigrant the average foreign born person was somebody's grandparent uh, and so immigrants were just uh, had just disappeared from american society uh, and African-Americans were only 10% of the country. Latinos were 4.7%. Asians were less than 1%. Uh, and uh, now, of course, uh, uh, foreign-born percentage is back up to what it was historically, around 14%. Uh, Latinos have gone up to 17 18%. Uh, Asians are about 5 or 6%. And blacks and multiracials, uh, blacks are about 11 or 12%, and multiracials are... Uh, about five or six percent uh, and that's more 
normal in, in the sweep of American history. And what we remember from the 50s and 60s was actually the weird part. <laughs> the uh, One of the other current themes that I, I seem to think or that I hear repetitively coming from the, the right side is you know, social programs are just socialism and they, they kind of really beat against a lot of things that we're trying to implement to kind of even the board for people that have a little harder than others and, and implement some really good idea social programs. But we do have social programs in this country. Granted, they're kind of trying to take them apart. Um, what well, most, most older white people, baby boomers, my mother included when, bless her soul, when she was alive, believed that they did it without social programs. But if you look at the post-war period, it was a massive social intervention with the, the, um, with the Social Security system, uh, with the GI Bill, with federal subsidies for mortgage deductions, the FHA loan program, which allowed uh, homeownership rates to rise from 30% up into the 60%. Uh, it was a major wealth creation machine that was created by the New Deal that equalized American society and brought broad, broad uh, prosperity to the country, reduced income inequality, uh, and generated two decades of spectacular economic growth. And that was all done with a large stage intervention, but it was directed only at white people. So uh, blacks and Mexicans were effectively uh, uh, excluded from most of the New Deal programs, from the FHA lending program, from the labor uh, labor legislations, uh, from the social security system, uh, from the FHA, uh, from the GI Bill, all these things. and. What really started to erode support for the Democratic Party was its uh, was its uh, adoption of civil rights as a social a program that it supported in the 1960s and its culmination under Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and Lyndon Johnson knew exactly what was going to happen. He was going to lose the Democrats, were going to lose the South for for his lifetime and the next generation. Uh, and uh, he was tr- his Great Society was an attempt to pump so much money into the economy that blacks and Mexicans and other outsiders and the poor could be brought into the political economy without expanding the pie so that uh, other people didn't suffer. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a zero-sum kind of competition. Right. Uh, and what tragically killed that was Vietnam and his, and his blindness to what was going on there. So that's kind of an American tragedy in and of itself as well. But uh, uh, my, my mom and dad wrote the the, the, uh, the wave of prosperity in the post-war period, uh, GI Bill, uh, Social Security system, uh, labor protections, uh, FHA mortgages to buy a house, uh, all those things, uh, and and a lot of funding for science, and a lot of funding for public schools, a lot of public for education, a lot of public funding for higher education, uh, all of which has been cut back dramatically simply because, and supported by working people, white working people, because they couldn't abide, couldn't abide the thought of that those, those benefits going to black people and Mexican people. What, um, what social programs do you think we could implement or improve upon currently to, uh, I guess, really level the playing field, so to speak? Well, right now, the most crucial thing are investments in public health and uh, and support for the unemployed. Uh, that those things have to be done until a vaccine appears to end the pandemic. And uh, if we don't do those things, then we're going to pay a very steep economic price. And and you can't just give it to people you like. You have to make it accessible to everybody who's losing a job, and everybody who's unemployed, which includes lots of immigrants, lots of poor people, lots of blacks, lots of Latinos. Uh, it can't just limit it to uh, favored sectors of the white population. Uh, and um, and, and uh, I, the Republican Party is really taken a, a, a white racist and nativist turn under Trump and it's been supported by the Republican Party. It's really the basis of the Republican Party at this point. And ideologically, they they, they believe somehow that 
if we provide the support to these unemployed people who have no jobs because there are no jobs, uh, that we're going to encourage sloth and disinvest uh, and, and disincentivize uh, labor. But you can't disincentivize disincentivize people from getting jobs if there are no jobs. Right. Uh, and uh, it's going to cause a it's going to take, cause a huge hit on the economy that's going to put us in a big trough. Uh, and it's not an ideological issue. And their ideology is always skewed towards people they like and people they dislike. So uh, it, 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 economists call it the moral hazard. If you make money too, if you make unemployment too easy and too, uh, too, too uh, generous, you do over, the, over time disincentivize, disincentivize work. But, uh, and they, they bring this up when it comes to workers and labor. But what about business people and owners? We spend billions bailing out banks and insuring banks for their bad behavior, and we don't worry about the moral hazard to those people. Yeah, the, the uh, too-big-to-fail concept big, is is infuriating for people that are not as well-off as the people that are making millions and billions of dollars a year. It's kind of insulting to the intelligence. Yeah, and that's, that's part of the anger. And um, but a lot of it's really infused now with race and nativism. Uh, it's really uh, the dividing line in American society. Uh, it's been and it's the end. It's the culmination of the Republican strategy that goes back to Nixon and the Southern strategy in the 19, late 1960s. Uh, and it's been building ever since and gotten more and more uh, harsh over the years. And and now. Um, it's really uh, the dog whistle has been thrown out the window, and it's blatant. Yeah. So you're, would you say you support a universal basic income then? Um, yes. I, I, uh, ironically, it was Nixon who ran uh, a universal basic income experiment, and it was working pretty well. And it ran afoul of conservatives because um, it showed, that one of the results that showed was that uh, it uh, made women more willing to get out of bad marriages and set up independent households if they didn't need to rely on men who were uh, abusing them. Uh, and, and it was said to destabilize marriage and the, the, and the, and the marriage system. So um, uh, that was abandoned by Nixon. And, uh, and it was and pushed by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, uh, who actually was serving in the, in the Nixon White House at the time. So, yeah, uh, I think that would be a good program. Uh, uh, we've been cutting back money for public education, both K-12 through and at the level of higher education for a long time. Most state universities now, flagship universities like Michigan and Berkeley and, and, and uh, whatnot, UCLA, uh, uh, their state subvention as a, fra a fraction of their total budgets is down into single digits. Uh, and uh, legislators somehow think that investments in universities is wasted money when universities uh, and the knowledge they produce and the skills they produce are really the basis of an information knowledge-based economy today. Uh, it's no um, coincidence that um, play, the Bay Area, the Northeast, uh, Seattle, uh, L.A. area are places that are with the economies are booming with knowledge-based economy because that's where the universities concentrate. Yeah, the about 20 or 25 years or so ago when I was getting out of high school, um, the big push had always been, you know, go to college, go to college, go to college. Nowadays, there there seems to be a need for uh, trade-based education and vocational training as opposed to, to college. Um, do you think that it was over-pushed to go to college and, and not? Well, know? I think a lot of more conservative people just want um, people to have certain skills that they can exploit in the labor market, and they don't want to have them thinking critically as voters. <laughs> yeah. And universities... Um, teach people not simply to have some skills, but to think critically and to be able to think independently. That's how knowledge is created, uh, and that's how countries advance. Uh, but um, 
that creates political instability for people who want things to stay the same all the time. It's really, um, but you, the technology is changing things here, uh, anyway. So we need people to be able to think critically about social issues as well as just technological issues. Agreed. Do you think that the, the decline that you mentioned from the seventies in science kind of is one of the reasons why NASA is having some of the problems and why we haven't done the things that we've envisioned ourselves to have done as a nation and as a, as a world uh, by now? Yeah, well, when I grew up in the 50s and 60s, I remember when Sputnik was launched and going outside of, the, of my house when I was about maybe five years, six years old, five years old, I guess, and watch, waiting for this dot to come blinking across the sky. That was Sputnik. The Russians <laughs> put up a satellite. And Sputnik um, lit a fire under the U.S. Uh, Congress to put money into science to keep up with the Russians in both the arms race and the space race. And tons of money was put into colleges and universities and scholarships and in public education, especially science education. And uh, all that's been cut back. And, of course, the Republicans have turned anti-science. Yeah. And that's, and, you know, and if you're anti-science in a knowledge-based economy and cut back on science funding in a knowledge-based economy, you're not going to win the global competition and you're not going to beat the Chinese. Well, that, that's clearly evident in, in some of the rankings where, you know, students in the U.S. meet um, – clearly are struggling to, to keep up with the rest of the world. It seems like as soon as the U.S. put a flag on the moon, we're like, all right, we did it, we're done now, let's, you know, let's do something else, as opposed to looking to go uh, farther and, and deeper into space to the unknown. Yeah, well, I went to public schools, K-12, through and then I went to what was then Western Washington State College, not a major academic institution. I think I was paying in, in, in fall semester of 1970, like, $120 a quarter or something, and the state was, you know, subsidizing most of my education. You can't even get a credit um, for that much money. <laughs> and, you know, I turned into a productive person. Uh, uh, but uh, that pathway that I followed is less available now and is much more stratified. Yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating that, you know, the amount of money it takes to get an education nowadays is it, it's almost nauseating. And for me, myself, also a you know product of public schooling um, out, outside of Yes, and um, the whole student loan program is, is, a, is a terrible racket. <laughs> the banks, of course, lobbied Congress. Congress could run its own lending program at a low rate of interest uh, and manage it uh, in ways that were publicly accountable. Uh, but Congress lobbies to make, make sure it's privately run. And, of course, there's lots of scams going on. And then the private sector of uh, the for-profit education industry that Betty, Betsy DeVos comes from <laughs> is, you know, just, is making money by scamming people, getting them into excessive debt, and then leaving the federal government to pay the tag. And they say they're against government funding, but they're really uh, drinking at the government trough and just arranging the political economy so they can suck money out of the public sector and put it into the private sector. The, I think and one of the bigger the, things... Limited number of pockets. I think one of the bigger things that frustrates me with the way that student loans are currently taking place is that you can't get out of them no matter... You know, you, you can die and your family is still responsible for them. And it's like the only loan that you can get that really sticks with you until it's paid off. And the amount of money that you pay, the, the interest rates, it's just, it's obscene on how some people are really kind of raked over the coals just to get an education, education to try and better themselves, only to be bogged down for, you know, 20 years after they get out of school to pay back their loans. Yeah, and the way the loans are set up with penalty, penalty payments and late payments and interest hikes uh, for, for, for uh, missing a payment. Uh, you, people, we end up, we're basically setting, we've set up a debtor's system of almost debtor's prison, uh, especially at the low end. I mean, a poor person gets a, uh, a traffic fine and they don't have the hundred bucks to pay, so they they don't pay it. And, and so they, more money gets tacked on and then it builds up and interest puts on. And then, and then when they get arrested, they go to jail and then they can't pay the bail. It's it just a... And then they lose their job. 
It's a. It's just a terrible system. It's a downward and spiral, it's, and it's relentless. Yeah, I'm. I, I've I've seen things like that, and, and coming from law enforcement, there was some things that I think can definitely be improved upon on a number of levels. Lots of reform, I think, is needed in the global thing of law enforcement, uh, both in prison reform. Um, a lot of laws could, yeah. be, could be easily redone to and reworded, rewritten that would be a little more economically and, and socio, sociologically uh, less impactful on people. Yeah, well, the reason um, police, civilian police forces look like um, uh, armed forces, military forces in the streets today is because that was what uh, the government's, the federal government funded with a lot of bipartisan support during the 1980s and 1990s, making um, uh, tactical weapons uh, systems uh, available to local police forces and hard military hardware and software and intelligence training. Uh, all this was really part of the war on crime and then the war on drugs, really militarized the police uh, and turned them from a civil uh, in, into much more of a military force with military ideals and military values. Well, uh, and it was also very profitable for police departments and unions. The war on drugs has definitely been, I think, a overwhelming, catastrophic failure. Um, what yeah, are, and we can't, get, it's, we can't get out of it now because of all the special interests attached to it. What are your, your thoughts on perhaps uh, doing away with the prohibition of a lot of the illegal narcotics well i think they should be kept as controlled substances but the penalties dramatically reduced and 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 it treated more as a medical problem than uh, a law enforcement problem i mean we've tried uh, heavy law enforcement for decades now and every study shows that it doesn't work and every study shows that drugs have actually gotten more available and cheaper uh rather than more, less available and less common and deadlier, <laughs> and it would be much more cost-effective to treat it as a to treat it treat these things as medical problems rather than law problems. That's also but, one uh, of the other problems, though, is our medical industry is is just so horrifically corrupt as well. Yeah, well, that's another racket. <laughs> <laughs> seems to be the mo of the United States is to to create rackets to. Well, to take it, it, it's a set of rackets to take what were once public goods and turn them into private, benefiting a much smaller number of people. <clears throat> I, I, I think I can wholeheartedly agree with that, uh, for good or for worse or for that. Um, I think What's amazing is how much support they get from the lower 80% of the population. I mean, basically, if you look at the political economy that's evolved since the mid-1970s, only the top 20% of the income distribution is benefited. And the higher up you go in that top 20%, the greater the benefit. So the, uh, the, 19, the top 19% uh, below the 1%, they've benefited somewhat, but the 1% have really benefited. Uh, and the middle class has really been stagnant, and the lower class has fallen, and a lot of the middle class has fallen as well. Do you think a middle and, class still and, exists? And they keep supporting country? they keep supporting these packages yeah. over and over again. Do you think that the middle class still exists in this country, is at least to the way that it was believed at one time to exist? Not like it did. Um, uh, middle class status now uh, requires uh, a college education. Um, uh, the days when uh, a, a, a man with uh, high school education could get a factory job or a union job and really achieve a middle-class lifestyle that was equivalent to college-educated people, that, that's gone. Um, and, um, and you can see the, the penalties, that, that the cost that that's uh, uh, creating in American society uh, in really the decline of uh, marriage and family among working-class whites. Uh, and lower middle class whites, and of course the fa the famous uh, deaths of despair that was um, that was uh, articulated by my friends and colleagues uh, Ann Case and Angus Deaton at Princeton. I I uh, recall that there was that's the um, the phenomenon of of white males early forties I believe it was that were committing suicide in a way that yeah, I thought was white males and white females 
dying from drug overdoses and suicides, and and some of the drug overdoses could be suicides. Yes. Uh, and the mortality rates for that segment of the population were actually increasing, and life expectancy was decreasing. Uh, uh, and there's a good book called Labor's Love Lost by a sociologist at Johns Hopkins named Andrew Cherlin, C-H-E-R-L-I-N. And it's the history, it's the rise and fall of American working class in terms of family. So if you go back to the early 1900s when we had all these uh, non-unionized factories and people were making barely survivable wages, uh, uh, working class marriages and relationships were very unstable. There's a lot of out of wedlock childbearing and so on. And then the New Deal came along and created a stable political economy with high paying jobs for factory workers and unions protecting people for basically work that demanded little more than upper body strength or service uh, skills. And, uh, and marriage became rock solid for the working class during this period. And uh, in 1965, when uh, uh, Moynihan wrote his famous report about the black family, he was actually secretary, uh, assistant secretary of labor in the Johnson administration, and he was writing this report to talk about the decline of the black family as uh, as uh, as a justification for a big jobs program to bring jobs into the black community pr- to prevent the deterioration of, of black urban society. Uh, and he was uh, pilloried by liberals because he talked about the black family as being unstable. But in the end, I think he was right. And now you can see what's what was happening to blacks in the 1960s uh, in cities has now happened uh, nationwide to the working class as factory jobs, as union jobs, as working class jobs, as manufacturing jobs have all uh, disappeared and they don't provide uh, living wages. Uh, and uh, and the, the top 20% of the income distribution, marriage has never been uh, more popular and more stable. Divorce rates are down. Rate of, rate of auto wedlock childbearing is low, and when it happens, it happens within stable couples. Uh, uh, marriage has been delayed. People cohabit now before they get married, and then they form stable relationships. When divorce happens, they get remarried. Uh, two parents involved in childbearing. This is the characteristic pattern of the top 20%. The bottom 80% of the income distribution uh, families families have become very unstable. Uh, women and men uh, don't get married as often. Divorce rates are very high. Marital disruption rates are high. Uh, it's not simply uh, uh, cohabiting that's common. Uh, it's serial cohabiting that's becoming more common with men moving in and out of families, creating complex family structures with multiple fathers for women and for children of the same woman. And this this started out in the black community but now it's spread into the working-class white and even the lower-middle-class white community because the family needs an economic basis. And the globalization that's occurred and the, and the technological change that's occurred has, uh, has really uh, uh, destroyed the economic base for what used to be the American working-class and lower-middle-class. And you can see it in the family, and you can see it in deaths of despair, and you can see it in, in uh, really the uh, undermining of a lot of the... Uh, public goods that used to serve uh, and support uh, a broad section of American society. Sounds like the the notion of people kind of bucking against a truth that is contradicts what their beliefs are has been around for for a number of years. It's not just a, a recent thing. Well, the top twenty percent of the income distribution has pretty benefited pretty handsomely from globalization and technological change. Um, and uh, 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 some of the richer and more conservative elements of the top 20% prefer to have American people mad at brown people from south of the border or black people from inside the United States uh, mad at them rather than white guys in suits from New York City working in hedge funds. <laughs> and uh, they put a lot of money into demonizing the immigrants and getting people all worked up about them. But it's really two big problems in the world today that every country is facing technological change and uh, globalization, which bring lots of money, creates lots of wealth, creates lots of benefits, but what to sustain it, what the upper 20% has to, uh, has to come to realize, and especially the top 
1% needs to realize that if they want to maintain a stable system and they want this to continue, they just have to tax themselves a little bit and transfer some money to the lower 80% to keep the economy going and keep consumer demand up and keep families uh, stable. But they have just gotten so blind and so selfish and so withdrawn from the rest of society that they can't even see that it's in their own best interest to uh, create public goods through taxation. Their detachment of reality for what it is for the quote-unquote average American is it's, it's quite yeah, well, blatant I've, when you uh, hear them talk. <laughs> yeah, it is. And uh, I've, I've done studies and, and got a paper coming out in an edited volume that basically shows that um, that over the past several, uh, decades, since the 1970s, um, uh, uh, the, the affluence in the United States has been more and more spatially concentrated. Uh, affluent people increasingly live in affluent places surrounded by other affluent people. The middle class has been hollowed out, and poverty concentration has risen, and concentration of affluence has risen so that affluent people are more and more out of touch with anybody who's not affluent, even middle-class people. And I computed the indices of the concentration of affluence for metropolitan areas all over the United States. And can you guess which metropolitan area has the highest concentration of affluence anywhere in the country? I would either say New York or L.A. Washington, D.C. Huh. I, I should have guessed is. that. <laughs> that's And that's one of the things that I've been frustrated with in a political sense for a number of years um it's the the lack of transparency that our politicians have that they don't want to talk to anybody or, or allow anybody to see what their coffers look like personally but they're doing everything they can to i mean it's clear they're benefiting immensely financially i mean it, it's the, you look at the real estate around dc it's it's a pretty expensive place to live unless you're on the quote-unquote other side of the, the highway there. But you have people that have gone into senatorships and, and into Congress with a, a relatively modest bank account, and after being there for 10, 20, 30 years, they're, they're millionaires, and it makes you scratch your head. If they're only getting paid you know, $150,000, $175,000 a year. How are they walking away from here as loaded as they are? Yeah, well, that's the swamp. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, Trump is contributing to it rather than draining it. I never thought that he would drain it. No, I didn't either, and I didn't. I, you know, as uh, uh, P.T. Barnum said, "A sucker's born every minute," <laughs> and 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 Trump is a great grifter and a huckster. Uh, anybody from New Jersey knows that. Anybody that that's followed him in, in the last twenty years in, in New Jersey is quite well aware and like I said I'm, I'm just it, it's painful as somebody who likes to look for objective truth to, to find a reason why anybody could support somebody who is just he's just such a horrific example of a human in the way yeah. he talks to people the way he the way he treats people the way he talks down to everybody it's just it, it's very disheartening <clears throat> yeah he's very self-centered very narcissistic um, and he's very ignorant you know, he's not a stable genius. <laughs> he's, an, he's an unstable idiot. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, just uh, just reading reviews of these various books, the tell-all books, I mean, uh, he didn't even know that Finland was, he thought Finland was part of Russia, and, and you know, just huge gaps in his knowledge about the world and the way it works. Every time he opens his mouth, he gives another excuse or another reason to, to dislike him and, and to, to really exemplify his lack of understanding of almost everything um yeah well the republican party the base has now become a know nothing party they don't they don't want to know nothing <laughs> they don't <laughs> they want it they want somebody telling what to believe and they want somebody who's going to act on the resentments that they have right well i've had you uh i've had you here for the last hour and i, I greatly appreciate the time you've given me um are you going to sure. be coming back to princeton anytime soon um, Vermont has the lowest uh, rate of COVID infection in the country. You're staying there then. <laughs> and we're staying here. Uh, we're about two years out from retirement. My wife's a Princeton professor as well. 
and um, we're going to retire here. <laughs> so we've been fixing the place up. It's a house that's been in my wife's family for since the 1930s. Wow. And so um, it's, we have family. She has family connection to the area, and uh, and uh, uh, we, were, we were planning to use this as our base of operations uh, in, in retirement anyway. Got it. But since the COVID hit, we came up here uh, during spring break uh, and then just never went back to New Jersey because <laughs> Princeton closed the campus and and the, vi- the virus is raging in the New York metro area and and uh, and we're safer up here. Definitely understandable. If you decide to ever come back down to Princeton. Yeah, will, unfortunately, would... that, that's another sign of inequality. <laughs> Which people move out to safer places. Yeah. True, true, true. During the the plague years in Europe, uh, that's how Newton discovered gravity. He was out in the country, sitting under an apple tree when the apple fell on his head, instead of at Oxford or Cambridge or in universities in London. <laughs> yeah, um, I was just gonna say, if you do come back down to Princeton, either catch a wrestling match or a, a beverage from uh, Alchemist and Barristers. But uh, with that being said, again, I want to thank you for coming on today and talking to me. Uh, it's been definitely an enlightening thing, and I'd love to talk to you again, perhaps after the pandemic is ended. Um, yeah. Care to? Well, thank thank care, you for speaking to me. I'm <laughs> glad <you>. to <laughs> share whatever fruits of knowledge I may have acquired over my many years in academia with the broader public. Would you care to tell anybody uh, where they can either read up on your plethora of, of <laughs> publications or where they can hear you talk? Well, um, if you want to read about um, racial segregation in the United States, I wrote a book in 1993 called American Apartheid. Um, if you want to understand um, kind of the debacle of American border and, and uh, immigration enforcement, there's a 2000 book called Beyond Smoke and Mirrors. Um, if you want to understand uh, how affordable housing programs can actually improve situations for, particularly for the state of New Jersey, uh, there's a book I wrote called Climbing Mount Laurel. Huh. Any particular reason why you picked Mount Laurel? Um, because it was we did a, a Mount Laurel was this was the uh, a city uh, in New Jersey where black residents in the late '60s uh, got money, public money from the war on poverty to build 40 units of affordable housing so they could remain in the city, the town of their birth which was shifting from a farm community to a bedroom community of, of Philadelphia. And they, they were rejected for, uh, and not granted a, a zoning permission to build the 40 units. And so they filed a suit, and it was finally settled by the state Supreme Court uh, in, two, in 1985, which created the Mount Laurel Doctrine, which says that in New Jersey, in municipalities can't write um, zoning regulations to prevent this construction of por- uh, affordable housing, and moreover, that each municipality had an obligation to provide for its fair share of the need, the regional need for affordable housing. And um, uh, and we did a study of the housing development that opened in the year 2000 uh, in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, to see what the consequences were for Mount Laurel and for the people in the project. And what we found, and, and this is all explained in the book, is that contrary to all the terrible prognostications, that when the project opened, there was no increase in crime rates, there was no drop in property values, and there, were, and there was no increase in taxes. And uh, for the people who got to move into the development in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, which has 140 units of, of uh, fully affordable, uh, unaffordable, affordable housing, uh, 90% black and Latino, that um, for these people who moved out of places like Trenton and Camden, um, they got a huge boost in their life chances, and they moved up the economic ladder with higher rates of employment, uh, higher incomes, lower rates of much lower rates of welfare dependency, and their kids got access to a good quality school system, and they were launched into a productive life as well. So it was a re- and. Uh, so it turned out to be a real boon for uh, everyone. Yeah. Uh, a, a three uh, a benefits in three ways. Uh, New Jersey residents got lower taxes because people that used to be welfare dependent are now paying taxes. Uh, uh, people in Mount Laurel uh, diversified their community peacefully 
without paying any of the negative, what economists call externalities, higher tax rates, higher uh, lower homeowners rates and higher crime rates, and none of those things happened. And the people themselves were really launched on an upward, a career of upward mobility. Yeah. So um, we told, we tell the story of how that happened in Mount Laurel. I'll definitely have to pick up that book because that sounds really interesting. Any other plugs you want to throw before uh, we end this? Uh, no, I'm working on other things now, uh, and uh, I'm like everybody else, waiting to see what happens in the election. Yeah. <laughs> bated breath <laughs> for a big yeah. change uh, again thank you very much sure have a good, good one talking stay healthy bye thanks for listening to another episode of adding context you can follow us on twitter facebook instagram or visit us at addingcontext.com you can also support our show by our patreon send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com